let be light in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set, set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Thanks a lot, Anna. Wonderful. Let's keep our Bibles open, and uh, let me just arrange some stuff up here. Wonderful. Um, Well, as uh, as Alex said, we are starting a new series tonight in Genesis, and I thought it's just helpful just to you to think of one sentence that that highlights the book of Genesis. and why we have it in our Bibles. I was thinking about this, and, uh, and I think a helpful explanation is that is the creator God's promise to rescue a sinful people. The creator God's promise to rescue a sinful people. You see, it's about those three things. It's about creation, it's about God's promise, and it's about his commitment to rescue sinful people like you and like me. Now, Genesis chapter 1 um, is one of those passages that, that many of us, I'm sure, are very familiar with. If you're one of those people who um, has made a New Year's resolution, maybe more than once, 
to do the Bible in one year, then there's a good chance you know Genesis chapter 1 probably better than any other passage in the Bible, if you know what I mean. Well, whether this passage is, is new to us or not, I wonder if we've ever come at it with the right kind of question. And by that I mean the kind of question that the writer and God wants us to have as we approach this chapter. What is God like? What is the creator of the universe like? Some people find Genesis 1 quite hard, mainly because of the kind of question they're asking of it. One that it was never written to answer. It's like trying to figure out what ingredients have gone into one of those cakes at the back, when the most important thing you want to tell someone is just how good it tastes. You don't want to get bogged down in the ingredients. You want to tell someone how amazing it tastes. And I'm sure a lot of us this evening have questions about this. And as we were reading through about Genesis chapter 1, how did God do it? Was, it? was it some kind of evolution? Was it in seven earth days? Was it intelligent design? The tough thing for us, though, is coming to this chapter with those kind of questions. Genesis 1 isn't trying to answer those. It's not looking to directly answer how this happened. But rather, it's telling us all about him. All about God. Look at the first four verses. If you, if you closed your Bible, please open it back up to, to Genesis chapter 1. Look down at the first four verses. In the beginning, God. We could have stopped the reading there. I'm sure um, Anna would have appreciated that. It would be a lot easier. In the beginning, God. Because that's what it's all about. It's all about him. The book of Genesis, but, but the whole of the Bible. It's all about God. And this is telling us that, that before anything was ever made, before we even get on to the creation of, of the heavens and the earth, it tells us that God was there. God existed. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit were always there. Unlike other stories written about the same sort of time as Genesis many thousands of years ago, God wasn't some part of the creation, like an angry sea god or, or, or the sun or one of the stars. The Bible is telling a radically different story. It's saying that God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit existed before anything. But in that first verse, he decides to do something new. Create life. Create life. You see, we are supposed to read this and think, wow, isn't God amazing? Isn't he incredible? Not sit back in our chair and think, ah, so that's how he did it. I'm going to see it now. You see, God doesn't just want our approval of what he's done. God wants our worship. He wants our worship. He wants our hearts to flutter when we read this. So I want to encourage you, to, as, we, as we think about this passage this evening, we need to lay down our own agendas as we come to God's word. 
and allow it to overwhelm our hearts, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, about what he is like, our awesome creator God. So let's have a quick pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we think about what you are like, and how Genesis chapter 1 shows us that, that you would teach us new things, maybe remind us of old things, but Lord, please show us how wonderful and amazing you are. Amen. Well, think about how amazing God is. I think even this chapter alone gives us loads of ammunition. There are loads of things we could talk about, but I'm just going to choose three. I'm going to talk about his creativity, his generosity, and his promise of rest. His creativity, his generosity, his promise of rest. Firstly then, God's awesome creativity. And he shows it, did you notice, by starting with nothing. There's no raw materials already there. There's nothing. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the spirit of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I hope you can see that before anything was made, God was there. It's only then that we see his awesome creativity in bringing something out of nothing. If you go home this evening after church and try and make something, you need materials. Whatever it is, you might need paint, you might need clay, you need materials to begin to craft something new. God doesn't. God is unlike anyone else. And in verse 2, you've got this emptiness, this chaos, this, there's, there's no structure, there's, there's no nothing, and we're told it's darkness. It's darkness. I'm wondering, have you ever experienced total darkness and felt what it's like, how, how disorientating it feels? Claire and I, during the summer, we, we often wake up early because the sun is, is shining through, even with about three different layers on the curtains or whatever we've got going on there. The light still shines through and it wakes us up quite early. So I, I went onto Amazon and I bought some special kind of sleeping blindfolds that kind of cover over your face and a bit over your nose. So it doesn't work on mine because I've got quite a big nose. It doesn't quite fit and the light still gets through. Anyway, it's still pretty dark. And certainly for, for Claire, she thinks it's, it's amazing. She went away last week and she was at a, staying at a place and she said it was a lifesaver. You don't wake up when, when the sun comes. And it's total blackness, total darkness that God starts with. And because of his amazing creativity, he begins to bring nothingness into something. From the formless into forms. Look at verses 3 and 4. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. I wonder if you noticed, in these, these first three days, it helpfully um, kind of sets them into paragraphs in our Bibles. In these first three days, God is separating out things. Do you notice? Firstly here in, in these verses... You've got light being separated out from darkness. Then in verse 6, you've got waters being separated out from space. And then in verse 9, you've got seas being separated out from land. His universe that was nothing 
is taking shape. He's separating stuff out and it's taking shape. And even in its first waking moments, it's beginning to reflect his awesome creativity. His awesome creativity. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. We look at the universe around us and it points us to the creativity of the one who made it out of nothing. It's amazing. Next we see God's amazing creativity in the way that all things are created. And that is by the power of his word. If we look down and read uh, that bit of verse 3 again. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. If you look in verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, in fact, ten times in this passage, we are told that God created things, and then at the end that God created all things just by saying them. His word was enough. Now, I doubt any of us would, would claim, certainly in church, to have God's power, but just in case, I'm just going to do a little test, okay, to bear me one moment. Salted caramel chocolate. Okay, it didn't work. It's a shame, actually, because I really do like salted caramel chocolate, but um, actually it's probably just as well, because the illustration wouldn't have really worked. Anyway, it didn't work. What we're being told about God in Genesis 1 is that unlike me or any of us, his word has majestic power. Majestic power. The universe hears him, and instantly it obeys Imagine a king sitting in his palace. All he has to do is say the word and it essentially comes to him. More wine, more meat, more music. But God has even greater power than that king. In his word to command even subatomic particles to obey him. Do you begin to grasp that kind of power that God has in his word? that Genesis 1 is talking about. It's amazing. But that's not all. Because if we read through the Bible, we find out more about God's word. In the beginning of John's Gospel, John tells us that God's word has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. Because God spoke through him. And through him all things were made. Jesus Christ is the word of God. And it's through this mighty word that things came into being. Things came into being. So what's the result of this amazing creativity? It's a good creation. A good creation. Not there yet. So if we look in uh, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1 and God said let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear and it was so God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good and then go on down to um, read verse 31 at the end of the chapter God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day 
When God has spoken all things out of nothing through his word Jesus, you end up with a creation that is what verse 31 says is very good. Think about it. He has brought order out of disorder. Life in all its, its variety and beauty and complexity out of nothing. C.S. Lewis captures something of this when he writes about the creation of Narnia with Aslan, the, the lion, singing things into being. I'm just going to read it because I love reading Narnia. I love reading children's books. So, and this is spot on for what we're thinking about. The lion, that's Aslan, was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling in the grass. Soon there were other things besides grass. The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley. Diggory did not know what they were until one began coming up quite close to him. It was a little spiky thing that threw out dozens of arms and covered these arms with green and grew larger at the rate of about an inch every two seconds. There were dozens of these things all around him now. When they were nearly as tall as himself, he saw what they were. Trees, he exclaimed. Genesis tells us that God both declares and demonstrates that his creation is good. It is so good. It is ordered. Which is why scientists can study it. It is ordered. Put simply, the universe we live in works. It is good. It would have been enough for God to show how amazing he is by creating all these things and then stopping. That would still show his goodness, his power, his creativity, but he doesn't. He has still got his greatest creation to make. And he shows it in his wonderful generosity. See, God demonstrates his generosity by creating people to delight in him people to delight in this creation that he has just made. People made in his image. Look with me at uh, verses 26 and 27 in chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. To be made in the image of God means to display something of God, to display his character and his concerns. Being an image bearer of God is to be a representative of him in his world. And it's universal, which means it's not just one person who reflects his image or a few people, but all of us were created in some way to bear his likeness, to bear the image of God. The problem is, is that we're all too aware of, and in two weeks' time we'll see, 
the likeness got corrupted. Like a badly damaged masterpiece painting. But what verse 27 tells us, for us to be like God means that we are, we are naturally wired to be part of a loving community. It's not just about us. Verse 27 says that it's not just the individual who reflects what God is like, but that actually it's a relationship which best reflects what God is like. It's a relationship. The way that men and women are on one hand alike, but also distinct, tells us something about God. That within the Trinity, within the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, there is this complementarity That like a man and a woman complement each other in marriage, the same is true for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They exist together in this loving bond, yet they're not to be confused. They're not identical. And we as followers of Jesus Christ are called to be like that as well. If you are someone who struggles with with self-esteem or maybe envying others, does this tell you something better about yourself? that you are made by God to reflect his likeness in your character, in your life, but also in your relationships with other believers. Look also at God's wonderful generosity in giving us everything. Look at verses 29 and 30. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God tells his image bearers that I give it all to you. This creation that reflects myself, I give it all to you. And this shows us so much of what God's heart is like. He wants to to shower his beloved children with gifts. It's like a king marrying his bride and wanting to give her everything he owns. His kingdom, his riches, his animals, his everything to show his love for her. And this is what the loving creator God in Genesis 1 wants for insignificant creation, insignificant people like us. And where is God's caution or reserve in terms of how much he gives out? Does he hold some of it back in case we make a mess of it? There isn't any reserve, is there? He wants his people to have everything in creation so that they might know his goodness and worship him and love him more. And to see who he is, a generous God. Verse 28 He wants them to lovingly care for it too. I wonder, do we see this world and this creation as a gift to us? Or is it just just something we we take advantage of and, and use when it suits us? How do we treat it as a gift from God? Do we care even about sort of litter and pollution and wastage? Is that how we should treat the gift from our God who has given us all good things. Lastly then, his gracious plan. I'm wondering at this point, are you thinking to yourself, this all sounds a bit too good to be true. Come on, Tim. We'll look at the end of the passage. Let's start at chapter 1, verse 31, and then finish down to the end. 
Oh, sorry, chapter... Anyway, follow me. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Stop there. The end of chapter 1 takes us right up to the end of creation. But the fact of the matter is, we know, don't we, that life is not like this. This sounds great. But we will walk out those doors, and maybe within minutes, maybe hours or days, we will experience the truth that the world we live in does not feel like this. And we know that humanity is not the kind of image bearers of God that we should be. We look at the evil and injustice in the world and in our hearts caused by sin. Phil was talking about this morning. We see all of that. And we say to ourselves, this doesn't look very good. French writer Blaise Pascal picked up on this. He said, what sort of freak then is humanity? How monstrous. Judge of all things and feeble earthworm. Storehouse of truth and vessel of doubt and error. The glory and the garbage of the universe. Man's greatness and man's wretchedness are so evident. So what's the solution? We know we do not live in a creation exactly like it was in Genesis 1. But what this passage finishes with is a picture of what is to come, even in the first passage of the Bible. And that is the promise of a future day of rest. Let's look at those last two verses now. Chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now think about it. God's been hard at work for six days. He hasn't had a break. And now he's tired and having a bit of a lie down. Can't blame him, really. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. God's rest in the Bible is tied in with entering into his presence, experiencing his goodness and his peace. Once again, actually, like in Genesis 1. And if we skip into the next book of the Bible, into Exodus, we see God's people in slavery in Egypt, and God sends Moses, and then he uses Moses to bring the people out of slavery. And after that, he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, And the fourth commandment, because we all learned it in Sunday school, we know them off by heart, is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God instructs his people who have been rescued to remember how he rested, and they should do the same. Of course, you know, it's good to rest, isn't it? I mean, that picture there, it'd be lovely to to sit down on that bench and look out to, to a beautiful beach. But the instruction to rest on, on the Sabbath isn't, isn't just physically resting and not working for a day. But actually it's a pointer. It's like a signpost. It's pointing to a time when God's saved people would all be experiencing his personal Sabbath rest. Like the Sabbath rest on that seventh day in Genesis 2. No more garbage. No more sin or frustration or pain or death but rest from all those things in God's presence. And as the Old Testament continues on, God's people are kind of hoping and seeing how this, how this rest is going to happen, how it's possible. And then we find out in the New Testament. Let me just read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. 
verse 9 to 11. The writer of Hebrews says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. Even the people who have fallen far short of that ideal of Genesis 1. But how do we get it? The Bible says that this rest was bought for us at a price. And we can experience this rest because the only one who ever deserved it, the only one who ever deserved this rest, the only one who ever lived up to the title, image of God, perfectly, was Jesus Christ. And he sacrificed his right to that rest on the cross so that you and I might experience that rest. The first chapter of Genesis, and the whole of the Bible is not about us or answering our questions, but it's about God telling us what he is like and what he has done for us. He is our generous creator, God, who, if you want, will welcome you into his rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Genesis. We thank you for what it tells us about you, that you are our creative, generous, rest-promising God. Lord, if we are people who who struggle with self-esteem or envying others, help us to know what this says about us. If we are people who struggle with boasting, help us to know what this says about us. Help us to be humble. And Lord, we pray that because of what Jesus has done for us, we may enter that Sabbath rest too. Help us to have a, a biblical understanding of the creation we live in and worship you and glorify you because you are our loving creator, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.